Hey, if you're just a tribe, this is Carmen Murray, and I am super excited to share an epic interview with you. Recently, John Christmas and I started the In With The Two Outsiders podcast, and we are interviewing outsiders from across the globe to understand what makes them an outsider and their unique stories and giving you content that's never been heard before. We decided to share this particular episode with the Common Murray Show audiences so that you can learn the magnificent, magical mind of Professor Jonathan Janssen and as he is an educational activist, is changing the landscape and really going up against the forces to bring a change in education in South Africa. I implore you to listen to this episode and also go and join the Outsiders community on Facebook. It's at Outsiders ZA and also keep up to date with all of the crazy things that we are up to in that community. You can also access the podcast by going to Solid Gold Podcast Studios channels and select the In With The Two Outsiders. This is an episode I highly recommend you listen to. It's life changing. John and Carmen walk into a bar called Life. There are six non-gender specific people at the counter. The first one says, what brought you here? Ah, uh, we're curious. The second one says, where did you come from? Outside. Who is out there? E everyone bro, we're all outsiders in one way or another. When did you decide to leave there and come here? This moment, because that's all that matters. How do outsiders get in? Uh, oh, well that's easy, just ask your friend. Ask why? TLDR, if you can't listen to the whole podcast, here it goes in about 60 seconds. Imagine like Yoda and our constitution had a baby. I know, it's messy, but it's not. This guest would be it. He's amazing. He's a beautiful mix of irreverence and humility wrapped around a core of competence and commitment. This professor walks the high wire between high academic towers and absolute street level. He is incredible. His x-ray vision cuts through smoke and mirrors, things like politics, prejudice. He sees straight through it. It's unbelievable. Imagine he had a, like a lightsaber and when you press it, just beads and smiling and happiness shoot out and make a blade that cuts through all of that cut. So he sees exactly what's facing our South African learners and he knows what's got to be done. He's blunt and sharp. He's very passionate but very calm. And he's very, very crazy but he's considered. He's an incredible human being. He's an African Jedi Master. I don't know how else to explain him. You just feel like you've sat at the feet of a Zen Master. In this interview, he finally says, if they call his name, he will step into the arena of politics and try and help this country. He bluntly says, no matter what you say about education, there is no point having a fourth industrial revolution while children are worried about their own safety, or hygiene, or their level of hunger at school. He wants to fix that first. The future is not about AI. It's about ladies from the Enkhir Kerk becoming enlightened and teaching mathematics on the streets of Elsie's River. That is the story of our future. And all of these things make our guest amazing. A brilliant mind with a massive heart and a devotion to a word called equity. Professor Jonathan Jansen. Are you going to miss this? Fine, I don't care. Welcome to Outsiders. Great to be with you. We have a theory that most people are somehow outsiders. If you examine their life and their history, somehow they'll find that they are an outsider. We believe everyone has an inner outsider. Would you agree with that? And if so, could you describe your inner outsider to us? Assuming, <laughs> assuming I understand what you mean, 
the opportunity to learn, to be amazed, to be puzzled and to be thrilled comes precisely from the sort of insider-outsider dilemma. As I suspected, you understood exactly what we were saying. <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, got to make that degree work for me. <laughs> so many people would love for you to be the Minister of Education. Why have you chosen not to be the minister and be an outsider? First of all, in politics, it's, it doesn't work like that. You, you get chosen to be in government, in this government anyway, because you're incompetent, because you're a cadre, because, uh, you know, you speak the right language, etc., etc. So I think the ruling party decided early on that I was probably too independent, too critical, too disloyal to the nationalist uh, project to be a minister. So it's not that I, if, 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 for example, President Ramaphosa called me up and said, uh, would you consider being the Minister of Basic Education or for that matter, education? Until a year ago, I would have said no. Now, because of the crisis we have, I would do it. I would definitely do it. So it's not an unwillingness on my part, but I suspect it is a poor fit, you know, from the perspective of, uh, of those in power. Having said all of that, I really do believe that every democratic society needs people who are a public nuisance, who ask uncomfortable questions about the metric results, you know, who um, point out the fact that within 10, the radius of 10 Ks, you can be in one of the wealthiest schools in the country. And then 10 Ks away, there's a school in which a child drowns in his or her own feces. I mean, I take this to be a vocation to point out the injustices, to make a point of, in my research and in my public speaking, to say that we can do better than that, you know? And I, and I think if everybody's going to run around government under the uh, command of the chief whip and play those kinds of obsequious uh, roles, then I think that democracy is better uh, for, for that kind of, uh, distribution. So yeah, no, I, I, I'm perfectly happy doing what I do. I work 18 hours a day, like many people, to try and improve our schools and our universities, to give people a sense of hope in the country. And I think the democracy needs people who are not tied to the strings you know, of the state in that way. Listening to your last two answers, there's an amazing correlation. I love that you said that you seek opportunities to be amazed. Um, that's a beautiful, I think for an educator, that's a magnificent statement, especially for young people who grow up feeling they may not be part of the mainstream. And what, you've dem what you demonstrate by example is that it's possible to exist outside of that approval and yet develop a fully functioning conscience. Would you Absolutely. say there's a, there's a correlation between positioning yourself perhaps a little to the outside and the full development of that kind of conscience. I absolutely agree. I mean, you don't know yourself until the people around you don't look like you, pray like you, make love like you, come from where you come. And I have found that to be an extraordinary benefit for my own development, my own maturity, my own uh, capacity to see. And so if you live in a bubble, the people around your dinner table are from the same community, the same church, the same. I can tell you now that your ability to, to see the, the greatness in other people, the humanity in your neighbor is just limited. So I consciously put myself in what was then the university intended for Indian South Africans in Durban. I then went to Pretoria University's first black dean in a place set up for Afrikaans 
speaking white people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I love, I love, it comes, of course, with all kinds of humor, you know, if you see the humor in it. And, you know, people, I remember going to my first job in South Africa and after I came back from overseas. And uh, I asked my office key from the secretary and she said, why are you people from rent to kill always late? You know, and, <laughs> and, and I love that. I love I love being misrecognized because it gives you insight, not only into other people, it gives you insight into yourself, your own incompleteness, your own immaturity. And you must understand why this is important, especially for someone like me. I grew up in a very straight-jacketed environment. My parents were evangelical Christians. They meant well. They were good people. <laughs> But everybody else was going to hell except me, you know. So, no, seriously. And and so it was an incredible liberation, you know, to be able to not be a fundamentalist, to not see everybody according to your own compass of the world and so on. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful that people let you in, you know, mm-hmm. with, all yeah. the, with all the awkwardness, all the stumbles, all the difficulties of, of doing that. But, yeah, I wouldn't have – I think – I, I just had a show this morning, a radio show, and I said to people, you know, the best thing you can do for your kids before they become teenagers is to open them up to the world. That's the biggest guarantee against prejudice and bigotry that I know of. Something that I really, really love about what you said just now, so you are obviously one of the people that pushes the boundaries and breaks the molds. And it's so profound because so many times when we do that, we think that people won't let us in. But actually, we repel those that don't want to hear what we have to say. And we are welcomed by the people that are ready and have readiness to listen to, to what we have to say. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, because I've now worked at Turkey's and Free State, now at Stellenbosch, and been in these difficult places, and would accept invitations from people. <laughs> you know, I remember being invited to a late night meeting of deep the Bruderbond, you know, they, oh, they call themselves wow. Afrikaner Bond. Do you know how scary that is? <laughs> you know, in the, in the north of Pretoria with a Mursa Bible on the table, you know. And, and, and you know, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. And then the other day, a group of Muslim men coming in here and saying, would you please come and pray with us when we break fast? This was in Ramadan. And I asked them, where is this going to happen? And they said that it's going to go get wide. But I mean, I, you know. <laughs> and so here's a Christian guy breaking fast with Muslim guys, after which they have Shabbat with the Jewish community. Wow. And this is a great country. This is an unbelievable country. But you only get invited in to the extent that you open yourself up to those possibilities. Personally, I only got to education very late in life because I never met anyone like you. I grew up with white older men telling me that I was wrong and, and uh, it was very off-putting but now I'm learning and, and I, I seek educators such as yourself you have this beautiful ability to wrap gravitas and credibility with humor and irreverence it's often frowned upon because people think that to be irreverent or to challenge is somehow undermining the academic credibility of a person and that is so clearly demonstrated as untrue in your case can we just talk a little bit about that yeah, you know, I, I have, I mean, there's a particular image, you know, of the scientists, there's a particular image of the erudite scholars, <laughs> and all, almost all of, you know, because I've worked in different parts of the world, because I did my advanced studies in a place like California, which is anything but 
you know, uh, the norm when it comes to demeanor and behavior of, of academics. You know, I remember my statistics professor, uh, uh, you know, used to come and teach us, I'm not making this up, uh, barefooted with a dirty T-shirt on which was written psychotic state, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so on the one hand, Englishness of our universities, when you talk about places like UCT and Wits, and, and on the other hand, the sort of very deep Calvinistic order predictable culture of our historically Afrikaans universities is is funny for me, you know, it's sort of weird. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell them that. I mean, you, your, your credibility really as a, as a scholar comes from two things for me in a democracy. The one is you really have to be rooted in your discipline. In other words, you've got to know what you're talking about, you know. But the second part of that is that you, as a public uh, person, you then have to make that digestible to the broader community. Otherwise, what are you doing, you know, with your life? So, I mean, I can't show off and write my column on Thursdays about epistemology and ontology. That's a load of crap, you know. I must talk to people about the fact that the curriculum in our schools isn't working, you know, that OBE was doomed to be a failure. And here are the seven reasons that people can understand that. that. Um, and so on. So I think so I often tell my, my senior students, you know, you really are smart when you're able to say difficult things, complex things, whether you're a sociologist or a chemist, or whatever, in ways that people understand, you know. And so uh, I'm trying to get there, but I absolutely enjoy communicating difficult things. Tomorrow uh, uh, I'm at UCT to get on the doctorate and they told me you've got seven minutes to say something. They just made the biggest <laughs> mistake of no. their life. <laughs> <laughs> I should give you 70 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to say something, you know, that the students can understand but also that their parents and grandparents can understand who trekked all the way from rural KZN, for example. So, no, look, I think that this notion of sanitized, erudite, bald-headed, you know, man who is a professor of such incredible nonsense. Now, fortunately, it depends a lot on your socialization, you know, so if you, you were raised around people, as you were intimating earlier, that had a particular view of, you know, what a Christian is, or what an academic is, or what a woman's role is, and so on, then, of course, there are problems. If I had to strip you from all your titles and everything that you've achieved, who are you? as a person, and what keeps you up at night? I can't tell you how... I, I started my career as a high school uh, biology teacher. I can't tell you how honored I feel when somebody calls me teacher. And in different languages, you know, there are, as you know, uh, different words for it. Uh, in uh, Swahili, it's more limu, you know. In uh, But the word I love most is in Afrikaans language. Uh, they used to call the teacher not one of those they used to call you Mister. In other words, you know, that was the sort of respectful, deeply Mister. And it, is, it, it, it was about the mastery of your craft. You know, it was, it, it carries with it, as you know, a, a deep respect. And so, stripped of all the other fancy things, I can't tell you how honored I am just to be called a teacher. And uh, often when people read my CV and all the awards and that nonsense, I say, man, just save some time and just tell them I'm a teacher and let's get on with it, you know. So, yeah, and what keeps me up at night? Uh, nothing, actually. You know, I've been very lucky, very blessed, my late mother would say, to have a demeanor that even if the world collapses around me, you know, I'm able to stay calm 
And it is something that I've also, uh, with uh, my wife, been able to convey to our two children. And so I never panic. So nothing keeps me awake at night. And one of the reasons for that, just given the state of the country, is that I, I tend to think like a historian. I tend to think, so, you know, people right now are panicking, and rightly so. I mean, you know, every state utility has been plundered and mismanaged. You know, the lights go off, people, there's another level of existential anxiety, you know. Uh, so I understand that. I really do. Uh, but when you think as a like a historian and you sort of say, you know, in 1899, people thought this country was going up in flames. In the late 1980s, when I was a teenager, we really thought this country was going up in flames. And every time, every time we came out of that and we did something and, I, and, and saved the country. Now, what is the basis for my faith in and my confidence in the future of South Africa? It's actually very simple. I work in all the nine provinces. I, I go to a farm when a farmer's wife has been killed by murderers. I go to townships where, you know, kids were wiped out because of one other uh, gang-related uh, shooting. And I can't tell you how incredibly optimistic people are about themselves and about our country. So if you look at the extremes, in other words, if your diet of news is, on the one hand, Julius Malema and his brigade, right? Or on the other hand, the Steve Hoffmeyer's, and, and his brigade, then you get depressed very quickly. But the majority, the majority of people in this country, I can tell you this, they just want the country to work. They just want their kids to get a decent education. They just want to stand in a hospital line for less than an hour. You know, the majority of people want simple things. So my faith, uh, you know, comes from, I, I once wrote a piece, people don't normally read my stuff, you know, but the one <laughs> thing that went viral, the one thing that went viral is when I wrote the piece of plane, aeroplane, I think it was Mango, and for their, uh, you know, their, their little magazine. And it was, I literally did it in, a, in an hour because of a deadline. And it was called My South Africa. And if you go onto the internet and you type in My South Africa, you will be amazed how many hits that thing got. Because it is about ordinary people who really keep this country afloat. You know, not a day goes by in this office here in Stellenbosch where somebody doesn't come in who's doing amazing things to help other people. That's the basis for my optimism, not the extreme, not the fighting parliamentarians, not the corrupt politicians. The basis for my faith is that. The average Joe Blow, black and white, just wants the country to work. That makes a lot of sense, particularly with your title of Miester. Let's say it's kind of like maestro. Uh, mm. Someone who has a personal relationship with your craft. I mean, I think that's what that term, for me mm. anyway, means. Mm. And and uh, it's interesting because I, I do some work at Henley and we teach a lot about the polarity thinking, which is very destructive. Um, um, mm. And as an educator, and you've mentioned that you, you know, you've had little, perhaps little viral success in, in the media, but perhaps what is interesting in what you said, you, you seem to kind of be fairly dismissive of the polarizers in the media between, you know, Hoffmeyer and let's say Malema. They're, they're, they're polemic, but your kind of interest is in the quality of the continuum the center of our country, perhaps. Yeah, and that's the majority. Yeah, right. And and in various pieces, I, I refer to that by the title of a book called "The Moral Underground." You know, the people that make the you know the country work. I mean, think and just think of a place like Elsie's River. You know, <laughs> if you're feeling suicidal, you go to Elsie's River. You know, there's no, <laughs> no no guarantee you come out on the other side. In the middle of Elsie's River, there's a, a bunch of Afrikaans 
Tanis, you know, from the Dutch Reformed Church, working with township uh, mothers, and they have now trained unemployed mothers in Alsace. Just to give you one example, in mathematics, so that when the kids come home from school, the kids can can get a mom who helps them with math. Guess what? Over the years, some of those unemployed mothers who themselves didn't finish high school are now mathematics teachers in our schools, you know, wow. uh, and, and in some fancy schools as well. Now we're expanding that to other parts of the country, you know. That's just a group of women from, you know, very conservative church in, in the northern suburbs who decided to make a difference. I see that every single day. Our focus is so much on government. It's what government does. It's, it, you know, the gov- government did or didn't do X, Y, and Z. Well, guess what, you know. In all these nine provinces, you will find people like the elders of the mothers. I tell you, I, I, as I said, I, I put in my 18 hours a day because of people like that, because of children uh, like that. So I've, I've been able to teach and lead thousands of students over the, the past few years. And you know what? There is no greater joy than to see them take that set of values, you know, and and make it their own and and make a difference. Uh, Etc. So the notion of university students, for example, is only sort of wanting a CA and and making a whole lot of money it might be true for a few. The majority actually want to make a difference. So no, I'm very optimistic. You're like the Desmond Tutu of education. You just have oh those no 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 <laughs> <laughs> no no. I I honestly I don't come close to any of these great people. I honestly don't. I mean, they are my role models, the Mandelas and the Tutus and, and the Bayes Matthias and, and others. But no, 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 that is a serious case of mistaken identity. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate what you're saying. But just so you know, my feet are solidly on the ground <laughs> <laughs> to my own sense of. I appreciate your humbleness, but I just want to also just address the elephant in the room. Earlier on, you were talking about Cyril Ramaphosa, if he had to approach you, you know, to become the Minister of Education, you would consider it. And I want to understand, because our educational system is in a deep crisis, and we are talking about the fourth industrial revolution, yet our educational system is based on the 20th century education. And what needs to change in order for us to get ready for this fourth industrial revolution from the younger generations, because I'm very concerned about it. That's an important question. And I just led the all morning seminar, by the way, with business people and science people on this very question. You know, I spend every year, I spend a bit of time, you know, in uh, Palo Alto, California, where I studied at Stanford, because it's in the middle of the Silicon Valley. So you talk for IR, I mean, that's where it's happening, right? You know what's interesting about that? is that when you meet with people who, you know, from Facebook or Google uh, or, or these places, which is all around that Bay Area uh, of San Francisco, you will never hear them using the word fourth industrial. <laughs> never. Okay. They, we South Africans think that by throwing around the slogan that you get the product, you know, you don't. So that said, the world is changing. You're right. And, and, and innovation and science. And, and, and invention and stuff like that is what's going to keep us, you know, in touch with the rest of the world when it comes to, I mean, South Africans go there and become famous with these things like um, Mr. Musk, but also many others. Now, my view is that in order to do any of those things, you need to get the basics right first. In other words, you have to have kids who can do math and science 
You have to have kids who can communicate and appreciate art. In other words, you just got to make sure, okay, that the kid is safe, mm-hmm. okay, etc., and that they won't die, and that uh, and that they have access to to a qualified teacher who shows up every day and teaches them to the best of her ability. If you set those basic things in place, you then have a platform for talking about artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. or robotics, or machine learning, and the like. But you can't go in with that stuff if there's no electricity. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard the joke today. <laughs> you know, President Ramaphosa, there's so many of these memes, but President Ramaphosa often goes around and says, I'm shocked by this, I'm shocked by that. And somebody said today on Twitter, well, to be shocked, you must have electricity. <laughs> you can't be shocked in a vacuum. But yeah, I think we need to get over our, our state of shock <laughs> and do the basic. So, so if I were privileged to be the Minister of, of Education uh, for schools, I can get it right now. That's the first thing I would do. I wouldn't worry about the fancy schools. I wouldn't worry about Rodine and Park and Cole and Westerford and uh, Bishops. Because those schools will do well regardless mm. of government intervention. What you need to do is to make sure that the 80% of schools in our estimation that are not working, that are dysfunctional, Mm. That you put in place a textbook for every child, a roof over their heads, a qualified teacher, somebody dedicated to showing up every day. And I can tell you now, I, I haven't been anywhere in the world, and I study schools for a living. I haven't been anywhere in the world where kids say, I'm going to school to mess up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kid yeah. goes to school because they want to do something with their lives. And we fail them. The children are not the problem, let me tell you. We fail them. As you're speaking, I mean, I realize that there's a massive willful ignorance about the crisis in education. It's often placed in the wrong place. Would you say that it's as important for whoever's in charge of education to educate the taxpaying public on the the importance of educating everyone? I think that's extremely important, and especially in poorer communities, you know, Mm. uh, where, where people, because they're busy, because they're impoverished, they don't have the same access, you know, to resources and so on to impress on the schools the importance of, of teaching. You know, just to give you an example, in, in almost any township school that I've been to, in November, for example, you'd find that by 12 o'clock, the school is empty. Everybody's gone home. In the schools that I work with in Kozulu Natal, in any given year, for a small school of about 20 teachers, you know, there's about 200 to 300 teacher days lost because the teacher simply didn't show up. Now, I want you to imagine that happening in a fancy middle-class school that mm. parents will rise up, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you'll be in trouble. And in our poorer schools, it doesn't happen. And so groups like Equal Education, the NGO, are the groups that I support because they draw attention, not just to uh, the attention of government, but also of, of working communities, that uh, you need to take an interest in what happens in your school. You need to demand certain kinds of basic uh, decencies of, of, of the school community. Otherwise, it's not going to change. So educating, you know, then us as academics, you know, we have to put out in very straightforward and simple terms information about, you know, so every year when uh, Minister Mocheha gets up and tells us the country is doing really well, as you know, I, I, I lay into those results and I say, wait, let's unpack this. Let's unpack the fact that 80% of the kids are doing mathematical literacy, which is a dead-end stream. If you want to do anything significant in, you know, science and engineering, I also think that we educate the public through our writing, through our speaking, and through shows like yours. The the problem is that there's a misunderstanding of what education 
means and how it's achieved and the fact that if you know if you're talking about a kid who goes to school under extreme constraints the resilience the will to achieve you know that child is going to leave school far more determined than someone who's been playing on rolling lawns with you know sprinklers and whatever yeah. other nonsense i mean the spirit of the child you know and, and that will i mean i i study with a guy who studied by candlelight Wow. And I, yeah. I moan if my referencing software is playing up. I mean, <laughs> the <clears throat> gap between our yeah. will to succeed is is really tangible. What that means for us as educators is to impress. And if you've ever been to my, you know, five, six, seven speeches a week uh, uh, around the country, I the, the key line in that speech is to impress on every child, especially children, in those kinds of circumstances that you're actually smarter than you think. Yeah. You are not a reflection of your circumstances, you know. Yeah. And therefore, uh, people like myself, you know, also didn't grow up with, you know, uh, too much around me, can make it, can do it. And and I, I tell you something, if you can get that message across, then it really doesn't matter where you study or with whom you study, you know, mm. you, you, you make a way out of it. So, yeah, I regard that as a very important public duty to to tell uh, young people all the time. Uh, they sometimes even smarter than the teachers think or their aunts and uncles think, you know. Yeah, and and they genuinely are. So I, I uh, that's half of the battle. The battle isn't so much technical skills and competence. That's part of it. Mm. The real battle is getting people to believe in themselves when everything around them suggests that they're not worth anything. So if we look at the Finnish educational system, I mean, they are really getting it right. Why can't we get that mm. right here? The, the big issue is, uh, you know, if you just take Finland as one example, you could also take Singapore uh, as another. It, it's something we call culture, right? You know, you can bring textbooks into every school. Uh, that's a physical thing. But culture is not something in which you can deliver by turning the lights on and off, right? It's something developed over time, uh, et cetera. One of the big issues in in the culture of South African schools is that we have, in many ways, lost respect for learning. A lot of that can be traced to our particular apartheid legacy, but also to what happened in 1976. Glorious as that moment was for, for politics, it was disastrous for education because we never really recovered a sense of respect for the teacher, a sense of discipline when it comes to learning a sense of monitoring and evaluation when it comes to uh, the work of professionals. We don't do that stuff in most of our schools. And the result of that is that there's no accountability. So if I do stay away, you know, for 50 days a year, and this is an average in many of the schools I work with, there is absolutely no accountability. Your union will defend you and the culture will allow it to happen. So what we, the, the only way out of that is leadership. Leadership that puts a stake in the ground and say, is genoeg, this is how it's going to work now. Yeah. And and I've seen schools in Umlazi, for example, you know, where that kind of leadership builds a new kind of culture over time. So much so that parents queue up overnight <laughs> to enroll their kids in the school that works, uh, as opposed to the ones uh, in their uh, own community. So um, there is there is a way out of this, but. You know, you go to a Finnish school, for example, uh, you won't find any of this because the culture that has been laid on there over, you know, decades and centuries even, uh, regards the teacher as an important player. Now, they help themselves, of course, the Finns, 
by making sure that every teacher has at the very least a master's degree. <laughs> okay. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, by the way, this is something we should work towards in South Africa and sort of say, you know, we still have most of us, many of our teachers, by the way, especially primary schools are there with diplomas. And there's nothing wrong with the diploma, don't get me wrong. But it does suggest that if you're talking about the modern uh, world and you're talking about 4IR and you're talking about all these other challenges, that you really need to do a massive upgrading of the single most important resource in monetary terms, and that is the teacher. So to get to where Finland is, you need to change, first of all, the culture of schools, which is a long-term process. But secondly, you also need to set the bar very high in terms of the expectations of the teaching force. Prof, it seems that there's a culture, as you say, of this loss of respect for teaching and therefore teachers. I mean, I I think that's something which we know is that in a classroom there can be a lot of hostility towards the educator. Um, But if we overlay that, and and I'm very aware of the fact that you you, you take great care to look at the bigger picture in a non-judgmental way, and I really appreciate that. But would it be fair to say that as the leadership, we remember the ANC as, as a really sort of intellectual a brains trust where, where learning was kind of celebrated amongst the leaders. And, and then there was an active movement to almost like discredit learning amongst leaders. And I'm thinking specifically around uh, President Zuma's comments on clever blacks, you know, that kind of sarcasm around the education of, of the self. I'm not sure if that's correct. I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm maybe cherry picking, but, but I mean, it does come from the, from the top down. Uh, the ANC used to be a very, you know, august kind of learning place, and that seems to have fallen away. No, no. If, if you go back to the origins of the ANC, you know, and, and I know a friend has actually done a study on this. The early ANC leaders, you know, were people who studied at Columbia University in New York. They were intelligent. Uh, they were the intelligentsia of those days. You know, they had qualifications that a lot of most white people didn't have at the time uh, uh, in places like the Cape. So you're right. We come from a tradition of a very noble party with intellectual elites, you know, for whom learning was a highly, highly valued uh, commodity. And then we lost the plot, you know. We lost the plot, I think, in the latter days of exile, the corruption that crept in long before the ANC was unbanned. And then, of course, uh, we gradually lost our footing in the new South Africa. So it's going to be very, very hard to change that, especially when those in government tell themselves things are working. When it's not, you know, when they don't take personal responsibility. So when the president says, you know, there was sabotage, it's possible. But I begin to sort of say, wait, Alec Irwin tried that line about the loose bolt somewhere. Yes, there was a a bolt. (laughs) you You know. (laughs) <laughs> and and when you lose credibility with people as government, when you refuse to acknowledge your own role in the crisis, then there are no grounds for correcting it. You know, and, right. and I just wish our government would say, look, our education system is in a mess, and here's the ten things we're going to do to fix it, and we're going to bring the best people in to help us, and we're going to tell the unions you are there correctly to protect your teachers, but you are not there to interrupt the schools of the poorest of the poor. Imagine you have that kind of government, okay? And then you begin to to move the needle when it comes to uh, educational performance. That can be done. My goodness me, there's countries all around us, from Botswana to Mozambique to Zimbabwe, that actually spend much less than we do per capita on education. But in every international comparative test of achievement, we're the lowest, they're the highest uh, in in SADC. So, yeah, this can be done. It really isn't rocket science. 
but it takes a leadership that acknowledges there's a problem and then takes us into their confidence and brings the best people on board, not because you're a comrade, not because you have the right surname, you know, not because, you know, uh, you lighter or darker skin than me, but because you're the best. Uh, and I, I have a lot of faith in our country. You know, you know, in some segments of our country, it works. You know, I always, I always sort of say, if you, if you lived long enough, you remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people would complain bitterly about the state of the rugby teams. You know, mm. you look at what's the two top of all these teams at the moment in, in the world. It's the seven teams and the 15s, the, the four rugby teams. And boy, do they look like the country. You know, and, and 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 if you can do that in something like rugby, you can surely do that in something like education. I want to say something that's probably going to be very controversial with you academics here. Um, <laughs> I find that um, education can be very boring. It's more like board education than fun education. I learn through fun. I'm like a kid when it comes to learning, and. The knowledge industry is growing rapidly. I think in the United States already sitting on $30 billion or something like that. People are reading books and learning new eclectic skills rather than going to universities. And personally, I have studied through UNISA and I found it exceptionally boring. Now I'm at that stage of my life where I'm contemplating, should I actually, you know, do my degree or should I not? But I'm just petrified of being bored and having my mind corrupted because I feel that I invent myself out of the box by discovering and being curious through what I want to know right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's controversial at all. You know, I, 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 I mean, there's a reason that People like the French philosopher Michel Foucault compared um, schools to prisons and mental asylums. You know, I mean, I do think it's boring. I do think it is designed to kill you. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've got. Thank you. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, my granddaughter's 18 months old now. And when she was 16 months old, her parents sent me a clip of uh, opening and closing the curtain. And you could almost see how incredibly puzzled she was about how the light came and went. Mm. And I said to myself, this kid is discovering a very important scientific principle, you know, right there, of cause and effect. I often say to my audiences, my biggest fear for Zara is that she goes to school. They will take away that curiosity. They will take away that spontaneity, you know, etc. So no, there's a lot wrong in the design of, and for adult education in particular for persons like yourself. Who wants to go to a place where somebody lectures you for three hours every night? I mean, my goodness me, you know, that must be (laughs) the most useless thing you could do. So I agree with you and I really don't believe education is just about putting people through the mall, you know, and time serves as a goal. Education really is about opening your mind, challenging you, making it exciting, putting you in the workplace, bringing you back, you know, getting you to ask questions, getting you to design your own projects and test it in the real world. You speak my language. So despite your humble opinion of yourself, we want you to know that as we say goodbye, we're going to build a monument to you because it's been a privilege spending time <laughs> with an exciting educator rather than the ones Carmen hates so much. <laughs> I know them all. I know them all. You guys are very kind. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for the insights. We really appreciate it. And we're very glad there's someone helping the country to learn. And I've got a joke for thanks. you. And I am yeah. not the comedian in the room. <laughs> so that could be a disaster. So did you see the thing about the South Africans with their sense of humor? There's a, a meme going around. I always used to call it Mimi, a Mimi. 
a meme. And now call it a meme. It's more appropriate. <laughs> anyway, so there's this meme going around about people having an electrogasm. So electrogasm is every time when the lights come on, it's that feeling of excitement. I've got electricity. <laughs> oh, my word. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. No, but can I share one of my own? Of course. Uh, you know the guy from Carte Blanche? You know, Derek. they just, just arrested Derek Watts. Oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> no, John, you're a freaking comedian. What the hell? <laughs> well, no, he's not a comedian anymore. Sorry, he's going to slap me. I've been at school too long. He's going to slap me over the wrist. Just want to ask you one question because I think this is an important one because we've obviously established you are an outsider and pushing the boundaries. Mm. What book are you reading? You know, I've got about 10 books next to my bed that I read uh, and I change them on a regular basis. The, the one that fascinates me at the moment uh, of those books is Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. Uh-huh. It is talking about inside outside. I mean, it is an unbelievable book about how our assumptions about people are wrong all the time. So if you wanted holiday reading, it's in exclusive books, Malcolm Gladwell, Talking to Strangers. Thank you so much, Prof. Thank you for your time. Great insight. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow, John. He's amazing. He actually understands the potential and he's so humble. This is what I want to say to you, right? So your view of education, don't let it be poisoned by what you've encountered. Those people exist and, and they're so important. Like they're rare. I mean, I don't want to undermine teachers all over the country. But when you meet a truly great educator, hang on to them. Because it's not what you think. I've got neck tattoos and I found people who are prepared to get me excited about learning. It's not elitist. It's not supposed to make you feel intimidated. If a, a true educator wants to open stuff for you, not close it away. Yeah, it's like Prof said, like open your mind. Completely. If you come to one of our workshops, you'll find we do a lot of group work where the lecturer is not involved in giving you an answer at all. Mm. You formulate your own opinions in your groups and then you share them with other groups. You discuss. You don't. It's not marked. Mm. It's discussed. Yeah. And what happens is you develop um, ability, number one, to put your own opinion equal to others, not to try and win. Mm. That's one of the worst things you can do. And the other thing is you learn to not judge because the students walk in and you, you kind of box everyone as you see them, how they dress, who they hang out with, what they're wearing. Like you, you can't help it, but you do that. And then you're constantly getting that broken by mm. what they put out. Speaking of that, mm. we had this disruption diary thing. We so did. The Disruptive Diary. John and Carmen challenge each other and the listener by providing a life-based challenge that involves disrupting previous behavior and learning new things. Neuroscientific research, that's brain research, has shown that not only does doing new things open new neural pathways, but also that it contributes to the long-term happiness of human beings. There are some rules to this diary, however. No is not an option. Number two, you have to give whatever the challenge is a good go. No slacking off. And number three, you can always ask for help from the person who set the challenge. Number four, if the challenge is impossible for you, as long as you're honest about the outcome, failing is absolutely fine. No judgments here. I've had some phone calls this week. <laughs> I've received some quite emotional voice notes. How has your vegan week been? Whoa. Okay, first of all, the first day, yeah. I knew I was vegan for, for that day. Right. 
and I put milk in my coffee, and I didn't even realize I did it. Okay, so you didn't follow a plant-based diet on that day. No, I did, but I, I okay, I did follow a plant-based. <laughs> I mean, you you did breastfeed from a cow, so so that was a whoops. But never mind, it's not the end of the world. But, but the idea is not to be like it's not a dogmatic thing. Let's talk about the general. How did it? Go for you. Hang on. I want to go back to what you just said. Okay. It's okay to fail. Yeah, exactly. I we, learned we from my mistake. Yeah, so, exactly. So we I'm, spoke I'm about a, that. I, yeah, so yeah, because you did say I must start all over again. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, if the, if the task is seven days, right, and then you drank milk, then you, then you obviously didn't oh. last the day. But let's assume you didn't do that on purpose. It was automatic like programming. You just went to the fridge because when you make coffee, you put milk in. Yeah, That's what you've been doing your whole life, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's not, it's not a trans, it's not a crime. So, so let's just say that didn't matter and then you, you carried on yes. and then did it happen again? It actually happened today again um, because I'm so used to coming wow. to the studio and making and then, myself a cup of coffee and then I took the cup. <laughs> yeah. I get, got the sugar and I was about to open the fridge and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not allowed to have that. Oh, but then that's progress. So you broke the pattern, which is the idea yeah. of this exercise. I broke the pattern. Good, well, well done. And the, the interesting thing that I, I've also learned about the vegan industry mm. is in the notes below, then you can go through the whole experience of yes, behind the scenes of and, and, and all the emotions and the meltdowns and what, what, what. I yeah. mean, I did give you quite a, I was so embarrassed actually after that voice yeah, but, note. But, uh, as I told you, you don't have to ever be embarrassed. <laughs> so, can I just say, if, I, I mean, I don't want to give away the whole thing here and you'll go to the show notes and you can hear about it, but, but you, you are different from other people. I mean, you, you approached it so holistically because you, you used it as a metaphor and that's learning. That's mm. deep learning because you weren't doing it like about the lentils or like some deep themes came up and people can hear yeah. about that late if, if we go that level. But, but the point is that you used it as a learning opportunity. Mm. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's, just the, it's just the content. The structure was you went to break a pattern and then it unlocked all this other stuff for you. That's the value, right? I know, right? The value is not that Carmen Murray ate like a veggie burger. Like the world doesn't really need one person to eat one veggie burger. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's great that you did, but the point is you learned stuff about yourself. Totally. By breaking your patterns. Totally. Super. And, and you know what, what, what I appreciate about it is the fact, first of all, I lost three kilos. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's so another that, benefit. Another anyway. benefit. Um, I think the other thing that I just wanted to to add to the 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 whole experience is that knowing is doing. When right. you actually do something, yeah, and you you research because now it forced me to to research and learn because it just seemed very overwhelming in the beginning, and when you do something that's out of your comfort zone, it forces you to almost leap into it lean into yeah, it yeah which really for me was probably one of the biggest le um, lessons out of it and i've actually got something for you oh. i'm gonna break down the word health for you oh wow yeah because i've got issues with food I have you made on. a okay we'll we talk about that because that was the basis of this challenge yeah, yeah. okay so I've let's hear it i've taken the word health and i've broken it down so health the h stands for honest with yourself great the e is eat consciously hmm. so i'm not going to label Going forward, how no. I eat. Right. But I am going to be more conscious. You're going to think about it. I'm going to think about cool. it. I'm going to keep the vegan um, lifestyle, but I'm a percentage of it. Um, I'm going to, A, accept a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's and good. Then, Acceptance is good. And then L is for love the planet and thyself. Nice. Self-worth. And for those um, fellow creatures. And then T is 
the threats of your well-being. Um, consider the wow. threats of your well-being. Threats, yeah, threats to your yeah, that's great. And the H is on a commitment to your own well-being. Wow, so look I at had you! My, I I decided yeah, and yeah, I just want to thank you. It was quite an interesting challenge. I hope I can better that in the next uh, episode. Wow, that's so good. Um, but you know what you've done now? You've raised the bar because you've actually got so much out of it. Mm. Uh, and actually, no, but I, if you think about it, right, because I heard some of the video feedback of your friends. Oh, yeah. Um, I think what you did, and I, and I really mean this sincerely, because I think this is why I think you're so cool, is, is you don't have to apologize for yourself, and that's excellent. You took it on. You see, from what I heard your friends saying in the background, it's about winning and proving something wrong. Now, now we can debate you know, veganism versus an omnivorous diet until the cows come home, literally, literally. If, if we allow them. <laughs> now, now um, <laughs> um, we could, but, but we, and that would really be a waste of time. This is, it's a polarized argument, yeah. and, and that's a bit silly. What you did, right, and I'm going to tie this into Professor Jansen because I, I think there's such a cool link, and you brought up Finland. What you did is you approached this as project-based learning. Mm-hmm. And that's a full immersion into a subject or group of subjects that will unfold in the course of a life-based project. And then you learned. And then you discovered like lots of other shit. It, hadn't, it didn't have to be about vegans. You very seldom brought the word up. And that's what I appreciate. That's what makes these challenges useful. And you did that. I never thought of that. Now you've made me have to think about whatever you challenge me. I can't be judgmental. I can't polarize. I have to go and learn. I have to gather data. And then you spit out a model at the end. I know. H-E-A-L-T-H model. I mean, look at you. (laughs) I learn from the best. I mean, I'm almost exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't started yet. (laughs) But you're going to have to, but you have to promise me that you're also going to give people a behind the scenes. Are you, you are terrible with this. Yeah, I'm not not great at at documenting, but you see again, you've raised the bar. So you've provided a benchmark. So I'm going to, I am going to commit that I will try and provide at least as much as you have done. One question did come up and I I think Mm. we must quickly tackle that one. Rinus LaRue, I think, said okay. something in the lines of, if you challenge me to be a vegan for seven days, then you should eat meat for seven days. What, what's your view on that? So, okay, I've got a couple of views. Um, technically, that's correct. I mean, no, but not should, because that implies that there's a direct correlation between the challenges. And that's not actually the point. The point was that you raised the fact that you had a, abdominal issues. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I suggested it as a possible fix. How did that go? God, I think, I think. I think what I've learned from it is like, I think I'm lactose intolerant. And, uh, okay. So maybe the plant-based helps you with keeping milk out of your diet. Yeah. I, Possibly. Yeah. Okay. It could also just be that you maybe. felt good about trying something. So, it, I mean, I'm not suggesting I that. I feel it, much better. I haven't had cramps. That's great. That's brilliant. So that's the first thing is we base the challenge on something which you expressed as a, an issue for yourself. Secondly, the point of these challenges is not to um, repeat things, but to break patterns. I have eaten meat for 32 years of my life. Then I became a vegetarian for 14, and then I became a vegan in the last sort of five or six months. So I could do it, but on balance, Renus, <laughs> just be careful that you're not making that th- as a threat or you're trying to punish me for asking Carmen to try something to break a pattern because then it's flawed. I have done eating meat, and my dad owned a steak house. So I've eaten some of the biggest and best red meat on earth. <laughs> you miss it. Some of it absolutely blood red. I, I don't read. I used to, okay. but that's changed for me. So, so what I'm hoping is that you'll give me a challenge that is not just something I don't want to do. That's, that's not the point. Mm. Um, I don't want to transgress my own value system. Yeah. Um, what I wouldn't mind doing is 
finding a pattern that I that I stick to without too much interrogation. And then I would like to try and investigating breaking that pattern and sharing the learning with you. I like that. Okay, well, there's lots of things about that. Is Well, we're going to have to ask him. You I'll see, tag him in. If should, that's a very dangerous, you know, that's a punitive system. If this, then that. It's like a, it's like a bit of a, a rigid algorithm. I think we have to try and understand what we are doing. It's a bit more complicated than, well, if you did something you don't like, then I'm going to do something I don't like. <laughs> like, it just doesn't... Temple of building. Yeah, it's just, it's that sort of standard South African polarization. Mm. And we're trying to avoid that. That's not the point of breaking yeah. patterns. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't want you to tell me that veganism is right. It's just different. Mm. And, and there are reasons why it's better. And there are reasons why it's not as good. There is some study that suggests that people who follow a vegan diet are at higher risk of a stroke. Because they're missing a fundamental oil, which you can only get in, in decent quantities out of um, animal products. Is that not a Fox News thing? I saw that. That's well, it Fox might be. News. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I did them? check it out. No, no, there is a study. It's is on, it? Yeah, it's online. It's an academic thing. So, so it's possible. However, the significant decrease in the, in the chance of heart disease on a plant-based diet Really, what they what I'm suggesting is pick your pick your ending. Do you want your heart to explode or your head? Um, 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 so what I'm trying to say is, is, I want to remove value judgment from these challenges. Yeah. It's not one is better than the other. We're not trying to come out here going, oh, I did that and you're wrong. Like that's a really dumb approach. I get you. I hear you. It's so a long answer, hey boy. I gave a long answer there. Yeah, but we need long answers sometimes. I hope so. Yeah, this is this this was an important thing to cover. It it really did. I I think I hacked my brain a bit. Did you? Uh, yeah. And let me ask you this. At least, at the very least, would you be excited about having a, what's your favorite meat food now? And you haven't had it for a week. Um, I haven't actually thought about the meat part. I'm missing cheese. cheese. But now you might have this dairy issue. So we, you know, that's an end. No, I need enjoy to go your check cheese it out and though. see what happens. But this is the thing is what about the 80-20 rule? Like if like when I went to the earth shop, right? Mm. I met a guy, Matthew. Matt. Matt, yeah. Matt's a great guy. He's a really smart guy when it comes to this check, stuff. Check the show notes. I mean, he's been 50 years. Um, yeah. a conscious eater. I love the way that he doesn't label it. And that's what he told me. It's like don't label it, just be more conscious. And I was like, you know what? I am gonna feel like having my favorite glass of wine like i love chocolate block. can you believe that about wine though did you know that that is just crazy yeah. i mean like they use egg jelly. they use um, jelly jelly which is generally marine based so it's fish cartilage or bone that's gelatinized cow something gelatine has got cow. cow hooves yeah yeah so they I mean, use I'm that disgusted well i mean it's just a very handy organic um and material for when you've got the wine things ra- rise to the surface and then you pour that stuff on top and you lift it out and it draws all the impurities. It's called clarification. They do it with a lot of sauces as well in, in French cooking. So they, they can use um, egg albumin as a very well-known clarification agent. Very hard to be vegan. You have to have an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> or you must just talk to vegans. And, and But you'll be amazed how we've co-opted animal products into what seem like not animal products. It's quite an interesting, just interesting whether it's good or bad. Last thought from my side was Matt said something so profound, my brain exploded at that moment when he said, we also need to recognize in the name of veganism, we also have to be very careful who we support because this whole thing about Beyond Meat is great, but they bring over the, the, the Beyond Meat from <laughs> from California. In a ship. In a ship that burns with fossil diesel. Fuel. <laughs> and bring it here. So all in the name of veganism. And I'm like, yeah. oh, that was profound. And I think supporting local is also very important. Yeah. Look, I have to say, just from my side, what I learned with vegan food is that you should eat about 20% 
what we call junk food, so veggie burgers that look like meat or sausages, whatever, biltong. And then the 80% should be whole food. So so try, if you are going to spend some time eating plant, try not to eat substitute products all the time that mm. are processed. Mm. Try and eat uh, as much whole food as you can. So straight from the field on your plate yeah. um, with as few processes between, you know, growing and then digestion. Um, and I found that that's where I'm getting more and better at that. So I eat less processed vegan food. I'm going to quote Rockamomos now. Bomb <laughs> to face. That's quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah. So. That was awesome. And uh, you have to go and listen to the Stafford Macy episode so you can listen into the actual challenge. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.